Speech by Stanley Baldwin, MP. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jill Cooper. Speech given to the House of Commons on the 10th of November 1932 by Stanley Baldwin. I find myself, at the close of a most interesting debate which has been well worth while, I should not have regretted a second day of it, because there have been a number of most interesting individual contributions, in profound agreement with one or two of the opening observations of the right honourable gentleman who has just sat down. Disarmament, in my view, will not stop war. That is a matter of the will to peace. That is absolutely right. As I have often said, there are two natural instincts that make for the preservation of the race, the reproduction of the species, and the preservation of the species by fighting for its safety. And the right honourable gentleman is perfectly right that the fighting instinct is the oldest that we have in our nature. That is what we are up against, and I agree with him in that, though he did not actually say it in that way. The highest duty of statesmanship is to work to remove the causes of war. We shall all be in agreement with that. That is the difficult and constant duty of statesmen, and that is where true statesmanship is shown. But what you can do by disarming, and what we all hope to do, is this, to make war more difficult to make it more difficult to start, to make it pay less to continue, and to that end, I think, we ought to direct our minds. I have studied these matters for many years. My duty has made me chairman for five years of the Committee of Imperial Defence, and I sat continuously for ten years on that committee, except during the period when the present opposition were in power. There is no subject which interests me more deeply, nor is there one which is more fraught with the well-being or ill-being of the human race. What the world suffers from, and I have said this before, is a sense of fear, a want of confidence, and it is a fear held instinctively and without knowledge very often. But in my view, and I have slowly and deliberately come to this conclusion, there is no one thing more responsible for that fear. I am speaking now of what the Honourable Gentleman, the Member for Limehouse, called the common people of whom I am chief. There is no greater cause of that fear than the fear of the air. Up to the time of the last war, civilians were exempt from the worst perils of war. They suffered sometimes from hunger, sometimes from the loss of sons and relatives serving in the army, but now, in addition, they suffer from the fear, not only of being killed themselves, but, what is perhaps worse for a man, the fear of seeing his wife and children killed from the air. These feelings exist among the ordinary people throughout the whole civilised world, and I doubt if many of those who have that fear realise one or two things with reference to its cause. One is the appalling speed which the air has brought into modern warfare. The speed of air attack, compared with the attack of an army, is as the speed of a motor-car to that of a four-in-hand, and in the next war you will find that any town which is in within reach of an aerodrome can be bombed within the first five minutes of war from the air, to an extent which was inconceivable in the last war and the question will be whose morale will be shattered quickest by that preliminary bombing. I think it is also well for the man in the street to realise that there is no power on earth that can protect him from being bombed. Whatever people may tell him, the bomber will always get through, and it is very easy to understand that if you realise the area of space. I said that any town within reach of an aerodrome could be bombed. Take any large town you like, in this island or on the continent within such reach, for the defence of that town and its suburbs, you have to split up the air into sectors for defence. 
calculate that the bombing aeroplanes will be at least 20,000 feet high in the air, and perhaps higher, and it is a matter of simple mathematical calculation, or I will omit the word simple, that you will have sectors of from ten to hundreds of millions of cubic miles to defend. I beg pardon, I am not a mathematician, as the house will see. I mean tens or hundreds of cubic miles. Now imagine one hundred cubic miles covered with cloud and fog, and you can calculate how many aeroplanes you would have to throw into that to have much chance of catching odd aeroplanes as they fly through it. It cannot be done, and there is no expert in Europe who will say that it can. The only defence is in offence, which means that you have to kill more women and children more quickly than the enemy if you want to save yourselves. I just mention that, at the beginning of what I have to say, that people may realise what is waiting for them when the next war comes. The result of all this is, and the knowledge of it, which is probably more widespread on the continent than in these islands, is that in many parts of the continent, I am told, open preparations are being made to educate the population how best to seek protection. They are being told by lectures. They have considered, I understand, the evacuation of whole populated areas which may find themselves in the zone of fire, and I think I remember to have seen in some of our English illustrated papers pictures of various experiments in protection that are being made on the continent. There is one very interesting feature of that. There was the Geneva Gas Protocol, signed by 28 countries in June 1925, and yet I find that in these experiments on the continent people are being taught the necessary precautions to take against the use of gas dropped from the air. I may have something to say on that later on. I will not pretend that we are not taking our precautions in this country. We have done it. We have made our investigations much more quietly and hitherto without any publicity. But considering the years that are required to make your preparations, any government of this country in the present circumstances of the world would have been guilty of criminal negligence had they neglected to make their preparations. The same is true of other nations. What more potent cause of fear can there be than this kind of thing that is going on on the continent? and fear is a very dangerous thing. It is quite true that it may act as a deterrent in people's minds against war, but it is much more likely to act to make them want to increase armaments to protect them against the terrors that they know may be launched against them. We have to remember that aerial warfare is still in its infancy, and its potentialities are incalculable and inconceivable. How have nations tried to deal with this terror of the air? I confess that the more I have studied this question, the more depressed I have been at the perfectly futile attempts that have been made to deal with this problem. The amount of time that has been wasted at Geneva in discussing questions such as the reduction of the size of aeroplanes, the prohibition of the bombardment of the civil population, the prohibition of bombing, have really reduced me to despair. What would be the only result of reducing the size of aeroplanes? As soon as we work at this firm of warfare, Immediately every scientific man in the country will turn to making a high-explosive bomb about the size of a walnut, and as powerful as a bomb of big dimensions, and our last state may be just as bad as the first. The prohibition of the bombardment of the civil population, the next thing talked about, is impracticable so long as any bombing exists at all. We remember in the last war areas where munitions were made. They now play a part in war that they never played in previous wars, and it is essential to an enemy to knock those areas out. So long as they can be knocked out by bombing and no other way, you will never in the practice of war stop that form of bombing. The prohibition of bombing aeroplanes or of bombing 
leads you to two very obvious considerations when you examine the question. The first difficulty about that is this. Will any form of prohibition of bombing, whether by a convention, treaty, agreement or anything you like, be effective in war? Frankly, I doubt it, and in doubting it I make no reflection on the good faith of either ourselves or any other country. If a man has a potential weapon and has his back to the wall and is going to be killed, he will use that weapon, whatever it is and whatever undertaking he has given about it. Experience has shown us that the stern test of war will break down all conventions. I will remind the House of the instance which I gave a few weeks ago of the preparations that are being made in the case of bombing with gas, a material forbidden by the Geneva Protocol of 1925. To come a little more closely to home, let me remind the House of the Declaration of London, which was in existence in 1914, and which was whittled away bit by bit until the last fragment dropped into the sea in the early spring of 1916. It was never ratified. No, but we regarded it as binding. Let me also remind the House, as I have reminded them before, of two things in the last war. We all remember the cry that was raised when gas was first used, and it was not long before we used it. We remember also the cry that was raised before when civilian towns were first bombed. It was not long before we replied, and naturally. No one regretted seeing it done more than I did. It was an extraordinary instance of the psychological change that comes over all of us in times of war. So I rule out any prospect of relief from these horrors by any agreement of what we may call local restraint of that kind. As far as the air is concerned, there is, as has been most truly said, no way of complete disarmament except the abolition of flying. Now that again is impossible. We have never known mankind go back on a new invention. It might be a good thing for this world, as I have heard some of the most distinguished men in the air service say, if man had never learned to fly. But he has learned to fly, and there is no more important question, not only before this house, but before every man, woman and child in Europe, than, what are we going to do with this power now we have got it? I make no excuse for bringing this subject forward tonight to ventilate it in this first assembly in the world, in the hope that perhaps what is said here may be read in other countries and be considered and pondered, because on the solution of this question hangs not only, in my view, our civilization, but before that terrible day comes there hangs the lesser question, but a difficult one, of the possible rearmament of Germany with an air force. The two things are inextricably wrapped up together. That brings me to the next point. There have been some paragraphs in the press which look as though they were half-inspired, by which I mean it looks as if somebody had been talking about something he had no right to talk about to someone who did not quite comprehend him, in which a suggestion was put forward for the abolition of the air forces of the world and the international control of civil aviation. Let me put that in a slightly different way. I am firmly convinced myself, and have been for some time, that if it were possible the air forces ought all to be abolished but if they were, they would still be civil aviation, and in civil aviation there are the potential bombers. It is all very well using the phrase international control, but nobody knows quite what it means, and the subject has never been investigated. That is my answer to my right honourable and gallant friend, the member for the Drake Division of Plymouth, to whose speech I listened with very much interest. In my view it is necessary for the nations of the world concerned, and I will make a remark about that in a moment, 
to devote the whole of their minds to this question of civil aviation, to see if it is possible so to control civil aviation that such disarmament will be feasible. I said the nations whom it concerns, because this is not a subject on which a nation that has no air force or no air sense has any qualification to express a view. I think that such investigation should only be made by the nations who have air forces and who possess an air sense, and undoubtedly, although she has not an air force, Germany should be a participant in any such discussions as might take place. Such an investigation would be, under the most favourable circumstances, bound to last a long time, for there is no more difficult or more intricate subject, even assuming that all the participants were desirous of coming to a conclusion. So, in the meantime, there will arise the question of disarmament only, and on that I will say but a word. My right honourable and gallant friend, the member for the Drake Division, raised a point there. He pointed out, quite truly, that this country had never even carried out the very modest programme which was adopted by Mr. Boner Law's government in 1922 or 23 as the then minimum re requisite, in the opinion of the government, for the safety of this country. He expressed the fear, the very natural and proper fear, lest we, with a comparatively small air force among the large air forces of the world, should disarm from that point, and that the vast difference between our strength and the strength of some other nations would remain relatively as great as it is today. That kind of disarmament does not recommend itself to the government. I may assure him that the point which he made has been very present to our minds, and that in my view the position is amply safeguarded. I would make only one or two other observations on this subject, my desire having been to attract the minds of people to the subject. It has never really been much discussed or thought out, and yet to my mind it is far the most important of all the questions of disarmament, because all disarmament hangs on the air. As long as the air exists you cannot rid of the fear of which I spoke, and which I believe to be the parent of many troubles. One cannot help reflecting that after the hundreds of millions of years during which the human race has been on this earth, it is only within our generation that we have secured the mastery of the air. I certainly do not know how the youth of the world may feel, but it is not a cheerful thought to the older men that having got the mastery of the air, we are going to defile the earth from the air as we have defiled the soil during the, all the years that mankind has been on it. This is a question for the younger men far more than it is for us. They are the men who fly in the air. Future generations will fly in the air more and more. Few of my colleagues around me here probably will see another great war. I do not think that we have seen the last great war, but I do not think there will be one just yet. At any rate, if it does come, we shall be too old to be of use to anyone. What about the younger men? How will they investigate this matter? It is they who will have to fight, and it is they who will have to fight out this bloody issue of war. It is reality for them to decide. They are the majority upon the earth, and the matter touches them far more closely. The instrument is in their hands. There are some instruments so terrible that mankind has resolved not to use them. I myself happen to know of at least three inventions, deliberately proposed for use in the last war, that were never used, potent to a degree and inhuman. If the conscience of the young men should ever come to feel with regard to this one instrument that it is evil and should go, the thing will be done. But if they do not feel like that, well, as I say, the future is in their hands. But when the next war comes, and European civilization is wiped out, 
as it will be, and by no force more than by that force, then do not let them lay the blame upon the old men. Let them remember that they, they principally, or they alone, are responsible for the terrors that have fallen upon the earth. End of speech. Recording by Jill Cooper, Essex, England.